Hello, and welcome to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubov, Dean of the Law School. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. In today's episode, we're bringing together a lot of threads that have come up this season. Big data, robotics, social media, and we're going to talk about how they all relate to statecraft. Exactly. So imagine if the military and intelligence agencies could master all of those technologies at once and gather all of that data and get them to work in tandem. What would they do with that power? What should they do with that power? And assuming that they already have that power, what are they doing with it? What are they doing with it? Our next guest has been asking just those kinds of questions. Ashley Deeks is a UVA law professor and senior fellow at the Center for National Security Law. She's also served as a legal expert in the State Department, advising diplomats on international law and armed conflict. And recently, she's been publishing research on how algorithms that try to predict human behavior, which are already being used in law enforcement, could affect decisions on the battlefield. Ashley, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. I was just wondering if you could start us out with some concrete examples of how developing technologies are being used in the national security field, how they might be being used or or could be used in the future. Sure. Uh, In the military space, for example, um, you can envision militaries wanting to turn to predictive algorithms to help them figure out how most effectively to conduct their military operations, where to send forces, Um, where to deploy, who to detain. Um, In the intelligence space where uh, intelligence agencies have a a vast ability to collect information, they might be using it to to help predict how enemy states are going to behave, to help try to identify where conflicts look like they're about to spring up in maybe a, a more neutral sense. We're starting to see AI being used um, to create fake news, fake videos, what are sometimes called deep fakes. So AI- Deep fakes. Deep fakes. Uh, If you can pit two AI systems against each other to try to develop very persuasive uh, fake videos, fake voices of people. So um, I think they did that to President Obama. They had him giving a speech that he never actually gave. You can imagine the direct and serious national security implications of um, releasing a video that shows a foreign leader declaring war on another state, for example. Um, And I'd say related to that, those are mostly national security examples looking outward. Um, But I think there are other ways in which um, high-tech tools are going to be relevant for national security, including facial recognition software, um, perhaps on our border, perhaps to detect terrorists inside our country. Those would just be some examples. of areas in which we're starting to see high technology um, about to play or already playing a seminal role in protecting our national security. So before we delve into those examples and and explore them further and and some others as well, can you give us a sense of how the law fits into all of that? I mean, it's either domestic legal regimes and international legal regimes. so, So what is the law doing or what do we hope the law is going to do? How does it interact? So right now, I would say that the law is lagging behind in both the international space and in the domestic space. Um, and I think you, you often see that technology gets out in front of law. That's not to say there are no legal rules that exist to regulate how states use these tools, but there are very few legal rules that regulate the specific tools themselves. 
So just to give you an example, um, international law has a big body of law called the Law of Armed Conflict, also known as international humanitarian law, and those rules regulate how states fight conflicts. So just because a state might be using particular advanced technologies in its fight against a foreign government or non-state actor, those underlying bodies of law, IHL, would still regulate it. Um, but uh, it might become more complicated to apply rules uh, that were written in a pre-technological era for the types of, of high-tech tools we're starting to see. So there's some baseline rules that, that exist, uh, but their application in the AI type space is, is increasingly complicated. You've written a paper, Predicting Enemies, that um, talks about the way that predictive algorithms might get used in the national security space, and you're talking about it um, by analogy to what's already happening in the criminal justice sphere. So could, could you tell us just a little bit about what's actually happening on the criminal justice side to help us understand what might happen in national security? Sure. What we are now seeing in the criminal justice space at the federal level, state level, and local level are criminal justice actors, including judges and parole boards, using um, predictive algorithms to help make decisions about how dangerous people are. Um, it comes up in the, in the bail context, for example, where you're trying to decide whether you should continue to retain somebody or allow them to pay money and be released. The concern, of course, is that they might do something, they might commit another offense if they are, in fact, a dangerous person. Um, likewise, in sentencing, judges are often confronted with a question of how long a defendant should be sent to jail. It's possible that the person doesn't actually seem all that dangerous, doesn't seem like the person will reoffend, and the judge might have an option not to sentence to any kind of jail time. Um, or the person seems extremely dangerous, and so the judge is trying to figure out um, uh, perhaps a long sentence is is appropriate. So they are they're sorting through a question that they have imperfect information about, right? They have lots of information about how other actors have operated in the past, people who have committed similar offenses from similar backgrounds and so on, but they don't know about the particular person they're confronting. And so increasingly, these systems, the criminal justice systems, are turning to predictive algorithms to help these actors better assess uh, what the person in front of them is likely to do. Just as an interjection, it sounds... You know, we think of our justice system, I mean, I don't know that it actually works this way, but we like to think of our criminal justice system as an individualized process of justice, right? And this definitely makes it sound a lot less individualized. Your own future, your own dangerousness, your own uh, punishment is going to depend upon data about other people, not data about you, right? That's right. And that's been one of the criticisms. I should say that these systems are, are not without a broad range of criticisms. Um, one of them has to do with the, the biases built into the, the data. So let's say that somebody with five arrests is likely to be a recidivist. But if the police um, in that area tend to over-arrest African-Americans, then um, the algorithm will produce um, a bias. So that's one critique that they faced. And Risa, the, the point you made is another critique for exactly what you said. They are, they are basing a prediction about person X on the past behaviors of person Y, Z, P, Q, and R. Right. Um, on the other hand, if it turned out that you could develop an algorithm that was more accurate and more consistent than humans, um, then that is something worth thinking about. Right. And in fact, we all have our own algorithms inside us 
uh, that we can articulate less well or or more well, but um, that judge is not making a decision about somebody's dangerousness in a total vacuum. Right. You're always using some You're evidence using, that comes. Yeah. Right. I'm, I guess I should say there's another area in which criminal justice is using predictive algorithms, and that's in what's often called predictive policing. So here you have police departments with limited resources trying to figure out where they should best deploy uh, officers on a given shift. Um, and of course, the um, the gold standard here is to stop crime before it happens. So these policing algorithms indicate at a very granular level where it is most likely that a particular property crime would occur between 2 in the morning and 4 in the morning on a Wednesday. And these algorithms are developed. Um, you asked about sources of data. The algorithms here are being developed, including day of the week, geography of the neighborhood, what the neighborhood looks like. Is it a lot of boarded up houses? Are there churches and schools? Um, phases of the moon are really? relevant to this. Full moon, harder to hide your offense. No moon, you know, it's quite dark out. Home football games, people get presumably rowdier, drunker. So all of those kinds of data factor into the, um, the policing algorithms. So, so this sounds like it's ve getting very close to the, the national security analogy and how that would come up. So walk us through that a little bit. Sure. So uh, what got me thinking about the potential connection was that militaries basically have to answer similar questions when they're fighting armed conflicts. In some conflicts, militaries detain tens of thousands of people, and the laws of armed conflict uh, require them to revisit periodically whether they need to continue to keep somebody in detention. So the militaries need to predict how dangerous somebody is. And likewise, if you're a military commander and you have um, troops in Fallujah, you want to send those troops to where you think they can best do their job, whether it's uh, preventing an attack um, or protecting civilians. Um, so they're asking themselves questions similar to the ones that our police are asking us in the, in the criminal justice law enforcement setting. Um, and of course, the parallels are not perfect. There are important differences. But it struck me that it was worth exploring um, ways in which the things we've done and the lessons that we've learned in the criminal justice setting might be something that our militaries are starting to pay attention to with their vast realms of data, including data about detainees and past conflicts. And is this something that the world's militaries are doing now or that you think they're going to do? Or do we even know the answer to that question? We don't have a perfect answer to that question. I asked a number of colleagues in the military and also academics who have previously spent time in the military to talk through some of these questions with me. And most of them seem to think it was an interesting question worth exploring. So I took that to mean um, there are not militaries that are affirmatively creating detention algorithms right now, but that it is not crazy to think that they might in the future. We do know that um, the militaries are starting to use machine learning and AI tools to help them process all of these thousands and thousands of hours of video that they're collecting from drones. It's very, very tiresome, and it takes a ton of man and woman power to examine these um, recordings to detect 
items of interest. Maybe it's somebody on the side of a street who looks like he's planting an IED or uh, a Hilux truck with a, some guns on the back moving to a particular location. So I think it is quite likely that our military, the U.S. military, I would say the Chinese military, the Russian military, um, with their capacity to collect these uh, big buckets of data and their ability to develop sophisticated machine learning tools, are certainly heading this way if they have not arrived there already. And where does the U.S. fit within this, you know, larger international scheme of where are we on collecting data? Where are we on being able to deploy these kinds of predictive technologies? Mm -hmm. So I think we and the Chinese are right out in front. Um, the Chinese have put forward a number of national plans and strategies indicating that they see AI as uh, imperative, that they see uh, sophisticated AI as the future of warfare. Um, and they've devoted a lot of time and money and attention to it. They also have a lot of companies that are uh, if not controlled by the Chinese government, closely integrated with the Chinese government so that they can dictate the direction those companies go. In the U.S., we have a lot of capacity, very sophisticated computer scientists and engineers, um, but the U.S. has a trickier path to navigate with the private sector than I think China does. And there's another important difference as well, and that goes to the ability to collect information about your own citizens. So... China has a greater ability than the United States, <laughs> we hope. <laughs> China has a greater ability and fewer legal restrictions. So uh, the civil liberties protections that we have in this country and our um, interest in having our government overseen and monitored as it collects information on us is not as prevalent in China. So they are doing uh, amazing things, for example, with facial recognition software because they have a billion people uh, and surveillance cameras all over major cities. So they're collecting, you can imagine, many, 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 many hours of, of footage and examples of faces that they can train their systems on. So you get the sense from civil libertarians here that people think we already live in a totally surveillance society, but you're saying we don't really. We're not really they there. They should take even a trip though. to Beijing yeah, yeah, okay. and compare. Uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, on that point, I, the the U.S. government is is regulated by statute quite carefully on its intelligence collection, generally, but particularly with regard to um, to U.S. citizens. But people are often much more comfortable giving their information to private companies. Um, why? Well, at a macro level, it's because companies don't have the ability to throw us in jail. Um, but on balance, we are giving companies like Twitter and Facebook and Amazon vast, vast amounts of data that will allow them basically to predict everything about us um, in, in coming years. So I think that's part of the struggle and discussion right now about whether Congress should be stepping in more is we are... Um, turning our attention to the, um, the vast amount of privacy we've effectively surrendered to these private companies. Well, especially if you go full circle and you say private companies then get to decide whether and how much they interact with and share with the government, right? So once you've given to the private companies, then it's not the individual's choice so much anymore um, whether that information is then going to go to the next step to the government and be used for other purposes. Right. 
So we want to get to these questions about private companies, but um, I wonder if you could you could tell us a little bit more about the predictive algorithms um, in national security. So in thinking about these predictive algorithms, um, it seems like one one issue in the criminal justice system and another criticism is that it's just not very transparent sometimes how these are being used. Uh, you know, national security is, is sort of by definition something that we as regular citizens don't have a lot of insight into. Um, is there a role for greater transparency in how um, how countries, or at least how the U.S. in particular, would use predictive algorithms and national security? So in thinking about the concerns that are almost certainly going to arise among um, groups in the U.S. who follow very carefully what the U.S. military and intelligence um, agencies do, they will be concerned about algorithms for some of the same reasons we've seen concerns in the criminal justice setting. They'll worry about um, whether it builds in cultural biases. That is coupled with what is sometimes, I think, just sort of a yuck factor of allowing machines to make um, decisions that have life or death consequences, or at least liberty consequences for anybody, including foreign nationals. So one of the points I, I make in the paper is that we should learn our lessons from the post 9-11 deep secrecy that we saw. For obvious reasons, um, our intelligence and military officials conducted a lot of operations that were not made public. And many of them came under significant criticism when they were finally revealed. I'm thinking about things like the rendition program, um, keeping secret sites uh, at various locations um, around the world. And um, we lost a lot of credibility. Um, we were unable in some cases to work well with allies because they felt as though they couldn't engage with us on certain military operations because it was inconsistent with their legal obligations. So I think this is an opportunity for the U.S. to try to get ahead of the game here. Um, we know that these kinds of algorithms are coming down the pike. And I think the government could do a lot of good, could bring along allies who are thinking about these issues, who are maybe concerned about these issues, to basically explain why it is that algorithms can be imperative to protecting our security, what some of the challenges will be in working through. I think they should be forthright about the challenges, um, how they're going to try to deal with some of the challenges that will arise. Um, so, for example, there's a concern about automation bias, that you will just automatically believe the recommendation of an algorithm and not use your own judgment if that seems off. What systems they, do you put in place to make sure? What kind of right. training? Exactly. Um, I think without that, you end up with something I call a double black box. You have the black box of algorithms, some of which are actually hard to unpack to know why they're producing the recommendations that they are. Inside the black box, Leslie, that you referred to of our national security state, which is the sort of um, this, the standard mode for U.S. national security. Double black box sounds very scary. Double black box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, along with um, the military articulating some of these standards and trying to be a leader in that, do you envision any kind of oversight um, by some other types of entities? Or, or how, how will this be policed? So uh, it will be policed first and foremost by Congress. Um, 
Congress and the intelligence committees really serve as our proxy for making sure that we're comfortable with what the executive is doing. The courts have not generally been um, aggressive overseers in the national security space. They use a variety of doctrines to help avoid the decision on the merits. One of them is the political question doctrine, which is a determination that, uh, that a particular question has effectively been allocated to the two political branches to sort out. So uh, it's very difficult to get questions about should the military be using a particular algorithm to continue to detain somebody in Yemen, for example, to get that before court. It's very tricky. And of course, there's also the public, right? There are leaks. That's another part of our secrecy ecosystem that brings things to light. People transmit information to reporters, especially if they're concerned about the programs. The reporters write articles, and that triggers um, both public discussion and often congressional oversight. And then to what extent uh, do you see a role, not just uh, domestically for how regulation is going to work, but what does the international framework look like in thinking about predictive algorithms and the future national security more generally? Uh, that's the question we all want to know the answers to. I think realistically, we are many, many years away from any kind of agreement on the use of AI generally. Um, I will say there's been a, a particular heated discussion in the international space on lethal autonomous weapons systems, which are pejoratively known as killer robots. So this is um, pejorative. What's pejorative <laughs> there? I don't see pejorative. It's, so we're going to talk about pejorative. killer robots now. All right, tell us about the killer robots. <laughs> oh, Ashley's work just is what keeps me up at night. So you've told me about the drones. Tell no, me about the killer, killer robots. robots. Should let you rest easy. Oh, okay. Because Ex- we'll have explain them. why. <laughs> well, so it's it's interesting that this is the focus of the international discussions. Um, I think it's exactly for the for the reason you just evidenced, which is, oh my God, this can't happen. (laughs) If we're in a world in which there are killer robots, you and Elon Musk will never sleep again. Um, And I should just note that one of the reasons that I was interested in the predicting enemies piece was that I think we're uh, quite some way from a world of killer robots, but it did strike me that there were lots of ways in which machine learning could be used in the military setting before we get to the killer robots debate. And in some ways, the killer robots debate has taken all of the oxygen out of the room for mm-hmm. the other discussions. You think it's a decoy? <laughs> yeah, it's a stalking horse. Oh, you go worry robots. about the killer, killer robots. robots. <laughs> and meanwhile, we're going to be over here doing all this other doing stuff step one. secretly mm-hmm. in the double black box, right? Perfect. Perfect. That should have been my abstract. Um <laughs> So the the discussion is going on in a group called the um, uh, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which is an umbrella treaty under the UN auspices, although it's an independent body made up of a host of states, including the United States, China, Russia, and 180-some states, I think. It operates by consensus. And so they've, in the past, done things like regulate... Um, landmines, explosive remnants of war, blinding lasers. So things that are maybe not creating the level of panic that killer robots does. And you won't be surprised to hear that there has not been consensus about 
how to proceed on this. Yeah, because like how different is a killer robot from a drone, really? Like super different because they just they're completely autonomous. There's no one telling them what to do or what? Yeah. So that is what people are envisioning, I think, when they talk about killer robots. They're envisioning systems often embodied in a robot that are programmed to go out and identify certain targets and use force against those targets autonomously. So this is without, like the Terminator. Without this... checking back in to a human controller who gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down to the use of force. That, I think, is what um, people are most concerned about. Now I'm up at night, too. Just, just <laughs> so we're clear. Um, that's what the Terminator was, right? He's a killing machine. That's like a machine that goes correct. out and kills people. Correct. But um, there are some systems currently in use that have the capacity to do a little bit of killer roboting, but they're being used in very constrained settings. So, for example, South Korea, um, near the border with North Korea, has set up a number of systems that can autonomously detect targets and could fire on targets. But that second thing, that switch isn't switched on. Okay. So it's currently there are still what we call humans in the loop. It's just interesting because it seems like part of the question is just do you need a whole new set of rules or you know, could you have a kind of per se rule that you know, certain types of weaponry just per se don't comply with the standards that we have? It seems like it's kind of one of these legal questions of are we going to say we have standards that apply to everything or do we need some special rule for this special type of thing or right. are the existing categories elastic enough to contain it? Um, I'd say there are maybe three state views on this. Um, one is ban them and they are supported by a bunch of NGOs who also um, believe that we should, quote, stop killer robots, unquote. In the middle bucket are states that are nervous about the prospect, that think there should be a form of regulation of what types of uh, autonomy are and are not acceptable, uh, but maybe wouldn't go so far as to ban them on, in all circumstances. So, for example, maybe you would be comfortable um, if you had kind of defensive systems on a ship that operated autonomously to shoot down incoming missiles, right? So fixed platforms, clear target, that might be okay. And then in the third category, which is where I think the U.S. is, and I think Russia is probably also as well, is that the laws of war exist and are sufficient to regulate these machines, these systems already. Um, there are a couple of provisions that would be really important. One is the idea of distinction, which is a core law of war principle that requires a state to distinguish between civilians on the one hand and military objectives on the other. There's also a principle of proportionality, which says that even once you've decided that you have a military objective in front of you, um, you can't target it if it's going to cause excessive harm to civilians or civilian objects around it. And there's a third provision that's important that um, it's called Article 36 weapons reviews. It requires states to conduct weapons reviews, legal reviews of weapons to make sure that if they were deployed, they wouldn't violate those first two principles. So the U.S. says you can't deploy lawfully a, a system that you're not confident can comply with distinction and proportionality. So that's the restriction. We don't need more law of armed conflict on that. Those are really important principles, and those would govern. So we might, de we might develop some non-binding norms about 
human control, the importance of keeping a meaning, meaningful human control. Um, and we might spell out a little bit what that means. But in general, in terms of new legal rules, we don't need them. And I would note, it's pretty unlikely that you would achieve consensus on a binding new treaty on this. So it sounds like there are a lot of challenges in regulating algorithms and AI internationally. What are our prospects domestically? So I think it is quite unlikely that we will see regulation of military and intelligence use of the kinds of tools we've been talking about for the same reason that we don't often see heavy regulation of how the military engages in its operations on the ground. Congress has had a very hard time in general dealing with technology and regulating technology. And it's, it's interesting, um, if you look historically, there have been cases in which corporations have been extremely powerful and Congress has gotten on board to regulate them, whether we're talking about big oil or we're talking about the auto industry, the pharmaceutical industry. We've seen these major powerful actors in Congress stepping in to say, you're not doing quite the way that we think is, is most protective of the U.S. citizenry or so on. Today, in this the past decade, we see other very powerful technology companies emerge, and we see Congress basically standing to the side. Um, we have not seen uh, any kind of regulation of facial recognition software, um, whether being used by private actors or being used by law enforcement. We are watching Congress starting to try to get its arms around privacy questions, right? One of the biggest challenges with these um, social media companies is uh, how much data they have on us and what they're doing with it, um, often not telling us what they are doing with it or using very, very fine print to do so. Um, and Congress is just now, I think, trying to wrestle with how to do it. And these questions are hard. I don't mean to totally undersell Congress on this because um, you do have, need to have some basic understanding of how the technologies work, and that doesn't tend to be Congress's forte. Um, you do need to have a vision for what you want the final outcome to look like. Um, and at this point, Congress has a potential, um, I wouldn't say model, but place to look in what the Europeans have done with the uh, GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations. So I think it's going to be a very slow process of regulation domestically. Um, and what they will be regulating is the the private sector rather than the government actors using uh, this big data for national security purposes. And you've written an article, Facebook Unbound, that's largely about how big and expansive these private companies have become and, and all of the different ways that they use data. And that on the one hand, it's very hard to regulate. On the other hand, there might be some urgency involved here, do you think? Um. I'm not sure urgency has ever gotten Congress to regulate faster. <laughs> well, what's your view? What's your view? Well, one of the things that I, that, that I was puzzling over a little bit is why Congress is having such a difficult time. And it struck me that there were some parallels between why Congress finds regulating Facebook hard and why Congress finds regulating in the national security space hard, um, which includes a sort of lack of technical sophistication or comfort with technology. Um, a, a worry about stifling innovation. Um, I think that's really in play here where we are confronting a potential adversary, China, that is um, not pulling any punches on developing AI. So uh, 
I think some of those same challenges are, are um, making it hard to regulate. On the other hand, we are seeing changes being made by these companies without uh, explicit direction from Congress. Some of this flows from um, congressional hearings um, and mm -hmm. the threat thereof, right. knowing you're going to have to provide some sort of explanation for what you're doing. Uh, public pressure, too, has led to some changes within the, the companies. And um, uh, we're now seeing Facebook has proposed uh, basically a Facebook court, a Facebook Supreme Court that would help it adjudicate what should stay up and what should come down. Because I think on the one hand, they're confronting criticisms that um, they're acting uh, to totally control people's speech. It's all within this um, non-democratic actor to decide what constitutes a threat of violence, what doesn't. Um, and on the other hand, they're being criticized for leaving up things that are uh, very pernicious. So in some ways, they've thrown up their hands and say, okay, let's try to come up with some more neutral arbiter to help us on this because we realize that we're not doing a perfect job here. Although I have to say it gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies to think of an alternative dispute system uh, outside of the courts with, you know, which have their own issues, but at least have all kinds of built-in uh, systems for uh, trying to provide procedural justice and substantive justice and to think Facebook courts, I don't know, that sounds, it's not quite killer robots, <laughs> but Facebook Supreme Court, that that also is going to keep me up at night. Maybe we'll have them adjudicate some killer robots questions <laughs> and that'll really send you into a tailspin. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think it would not obviously foreclose a resort to Article Three courts, but it would be an effort to... Um, bring a body of experts together um, who have a little bit of remove from the company. I think there's a question of how, how, much, how right? much. How do you create those systems? And to Facebook give them being the ultimate arbiter, right? right? But I think it just goes to show that the, um, the difficulty that we're seeing on both the domestic and international plane in reaching consensus about how to deal with these new technologies. This has been kind of a recurring theme this season about um, the ability of the law to regulate new technologies depends on uh, legal actors understanding new technologies. And, you know, Larry Lessig many years ago in, in thinking about intellectual property said, you know, there's the difference between East Coast code and West Coast code, East Coast code being law and West Coast code being technology. And, you know, there are big questions, I think, in lots of different fields about the extent to which East Coast code can keep up with West Coast code. Do you have any thoughts about ways that the legal system could get better, whether we're talking about Congress, whether we're talking about the courts, you know, the ways that various types of legal actors could get better at keeping up with and understanding technologies so that these hard questions can can be answered a little bit more easily. So I have two thoughts. One is um, something I think Congress is already trying to to grapple with and improve on, and that is bringing actors into the congressional space, into members' offices, onto committees um, that do have particular technological backgrounds to try to get both the members and other people around them smarter on some of these uh, challenges. And so... Um, there there used to be an office in Congress that was sort of an office of science and technology, a little bit like the Congressional Research Service for Science Nerds. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that office went away, but there's some interest in trying to bring it back so it could write plain English reports, presumably, for Congress to read on machine learning, AI, 
particular challenges that Congress is is facing. So that would be one thing. The other thing is a is a pitch to law students to actually spend some time trying to get smart now on what are predictive algorithms? What is machine learning? What is AI? There's a lot out there um, that's written in in relatively accessible language. But it seems to me that in a lot of these cases, we're going to need a lawyer sitting in one seat and the computer scientist sitting in the seat next to her trying to help craft code that is responsible, that's responsive, um, that's compliant with the law. Um, so I see a, a future in that left seat, right seat that's really important. And I guess in some ways that brings together the, the West Coast code and the East mm-hmm. Coast code. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Ashley you for Deeks. having me. I appreciate it. Good conversation. Thanks. Fascinating. So on our last episode, when we were talking with Mike Livermore about big data and the use of big data in law for discovery and for dispute resolution and all kinds of what gets called law tech now, we were talking about how important it is for there to be philosophers in the room and real analytical reasoning taking place before you program computers to do machine learning in those spaces. And boy, if we thought it was important there, then it seems way, way more important here where we're talking about war and the most destructive capacities that human beings have today. That's right. It seems like the stakes are even higher here than they are in other areas. And I really liked Ashley's idea of the double black box because it seems like an additional concern in the national security arena is how... um, how a lot of these decisions are just not that visible. There's not a lot of external accountability. And so having the right people in the room seems all the more important. I agree. And that raises a tension that I think has existed, you know, forever between expertise and democracy or transparency. And certainly going back at least to the progressive era around the turn of the 20th century in the United States, when there was the rise of new disciplines, the rise of social science expertise, there was the proliferation of federal agencies based on that expertise and a huge populist pushback that we don't want eggheads sitting in a back room making decisions. We the people want to be making those decisions. That reminds me of an example that just came up recently where San Francisco became the first American city to ban the use of facial recognition technology uh, by city actors, including the police department. And I had sort of questions about that, and they basically track exactly what you're saying. You know, is is that a decision made out of expertise, because there's certainly a lot of expertise about technology in San Francisco, or maybe um, it's the epicenter of technological development, and this is a populist reaction to that in some way. This is this is suspicion about the very technologies that are proliferating right around there, um, and I, I I'm not sure exactly how to process it. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what other cities and states do in response to similar changes in technology. You know, Louis Brandeis, a, a famous jurist, uh, described the states as laboratories of experimentation, laboratories of democracy. And that's true, I think, both of states and cities. And San Francisco has often been whether you want to call it the cutting edge or an outlier, right? right. San Francisco has often been very experimental in its policies, um, but it will be really interesting to see how and in what ways other states and cities and ultimately the federal government follow or don't follow those footsteps. Yeah, and it seems similar to what Ashley said about the national security context where um, you're, they're trying to figure out how to apply old principles, longstanding principles to new technologies. Um, and it reminds me of another 
you know, early 90s uh, sort of internet reference. So I'm clearly showing my Gen X um, creds here today. So along with the Larry Lessig East Coast Code, West Coast Code, um, there was a famous uh, speech that Frank Easterbrook gave in an article that he wrote about cyber law and the law of the horse, where he said, you know, internet law, we're trying, we're sort of treating that as it's, it's a new thing. It's a different thing. You know, the technology defines everything about the law in this area. And he says, that's kind of like the law of the horse. That's kind of like if in the 18th century you'd looked at a legal treatise and it's had a whole page on horses and a whole page on cows and a whole page on butter churns. And that's not really the way that the law organizes itself. The law is organized in terms of principles, and those principles should be applied to new things rather than sort of dragged around by them. I suppose what the technologists would say is this thing is so new and it's so different, right, that it's so different in kind that even if you wouldn't have necessarily had a law of the horse, because a horse wasn't so different from a camel or an ox or right. something else, right, that that this new world order and the new technologies are so different that they really do require uh, massive transformation in the law. Yeah, I do. I do think that that would be the pushback. And I think we're sort of still sorting all of that out. But it reminds me of what Ashley said about the killer robots, which, you know, I'm still freaked out about the killer robots. But, um, you know, is, is this a new technology that we can apply existing principles to? Or is it sui generis? And I think it seems like with a lot of these technologies, the first question is essentially that question, you know, and, and that I think entails understanding what it is, um, which that's always going to be new and different. We have to have experts in the room to explain that. But, you know, once you understand what it is, figure out, can this be contained and described by the existing principles? Or is this something that really requires innovation in the law? So I guess for me, maybe the last question, the $50,000 question is, when you think about the killer robots and you think about the law, whatever that means to you, does the combination of those two things make you more able to sleep at night or less able to sleep at night? Yeah. So killer robots on their own in a lawless society <laughs> versus killer robots in the law. I definitely feel better about killer robots in the law, right? And I, and I think talking with Ashley and realizing there are people who are experts in both the technology and international law and national security who are thinking about those things, that definitely makes me sleep better than if it was just the killer robots. But Ashley's often the person from whom I find out about the new thing, like the killer robots. So, <laughs> so she's responsible for a lot of your sleepless nights. Yeah, she, yeah. She, she has to do with a lot of my nightmares. But I'm glad that she knows about these things and is thinking about them. Well, I'm hopeful that people out there thinking about the law and the killer robots will make sleeping a night easier and not uh, because we're naive, but because the law really does play regulatory roles that we hope it will uh, and does play those roles in, in positive and productive ways. Well, that's all we have for you today. If you like common law on the East Coast, on the West Coast, or anywhere in between, make sure to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Our algorithms are predicting you have good things to say. You'll find a link to Ashley's paper, Predicting Enemies, in our show notes at commonlawpodcast.com. You can also check out our past episodes on Game of Thrones, driverless cars, and much, much more. And Risa, before we go, let's give a shout out to our friends on the production staff, Tyler Ambrose, Robert Armangal, Tony Field, and Mary Wood, and also to Virginia Humanities. Our show is recorded at their studios. I'm Leslie Kendrick. And I'm Risa Galyuba. We'll be back in two weeks with our season finale, where we'll hear what one federal judge has to say about the use of science in the court system. A major problem is that too many judges are intimidated 
by the notion that they would have to decide a scientific issue. Hope you'll join us then.